Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week, I talked to Bill Cannon, who is a New York City police officer for 27 years. 27 years. Could you imagine all the stuff he saw? Well, luckily, you don't have to imagine anymore because we're going to hear all about it. This episode is particularly intense if you are sensitive to gore or uh, crime or any kind of violence, perhaps. Uh, Bill was a first responder on 9-11, so we hear about that. We hear about a lot of uh, criminal activity. We hear really get a sense of what it's like to be on the ground as a police officer as much as we can in a podcast, I think. Okay, so uh, yeah, take it in chunks if you have to. It's intense. As usual, this episode is brought to you by Future Moments apps for content creation if you're a filmmaker musician podcaster future moments has an app that can make your life easier search on the apple app store for future moments and check out what they have to make your life better okay uh i hope you enjoy this episode uh, check out the show notes email the show we like feedback tell your friends all that good stuff hope you get something out of this episode I know I did. I am still processing it. Enjoy. All right, Bill Cannon, 27-year New York City Sergeant Police Officer. Did yeah. I say that right? Yeah, you did. I, I actually take credit for 27 years. I actually did exactly 26 years, nine and a half months. So I'd sort of round it off. At but that kind of job, I think it's safe. Yeah, I think I can get away with it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to let you know that uh, I've scoured the apartment and there's nothing illegal in here. Absolutely I, I don't nothing. care, man. I don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm out six and a half years. People like smoke weed and I could give a shit. You know, I don't personally smoke weed. Uh-huh. I have nothing against it. 
but it's just for me it's not good for my lungs <laughs> i mean i i always get nervous when i have a, a new guest yeah but this time you being on x officer i got nervous in a different way <laughs> you don't have to worry about that at all <laughs> believe me <laughs> Nice. Oh, I see. You're playing the game, right? I'm your friend, and then oh I, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me search your apartment when you're not looking. <laughs> nice. So before we talk about a formative experience you had, uh, can we get some background? I mean, you're. I saw you're head of homicide department. For well, no, you know what is I. I was uh, a cop for 26 years, nine and a half months anyway. But 16 of it uh, was in the detective bureau, and I, I made sergeant very early in my career. I had four years, ten months on. And I get promoted to sergeant. It, see, it's a test. You take a test, you pass it, you make sergeant. Is it a written test? Yes, a written test. Okay. See, people don't understand that. People think that the rank of detective is a rank. Uh -huh. A detective is is a specialization, and he doesn't. It's the same rank as a police officer, but a detective has a specialty as an investigator. But you want to get off the street. Oh yes, no. Well, well, detectives are on the street, but what a detective does is they investigate, and they get out of the bag. The bag is a cop colloquialism for the uniform right so if you're in the bag everyone knows that's the police but if you wear a suit you know no one knows who and you, you you want to get out of the bag because it's less dangerous yeah well it's less dangerous and it's more less interaction with the public who are a pain in the balls you know and, what i mean and that's that's what you want you want yeah, less interaction with exactly the exactly yeah and more interaction with interesting things but you, you know? had to start on the street right? everyone starts on the street yeah everyone you have to learn how to be a patrol officer before you can learn how to be an investigator. So when you started, did they start you at a tough part of the New York City? Well, when I started, they, they trained you in what was called neighborhood stabilization units. Okay. And I worked out of the 19th, the 2-3, Central Park, and the 2-0. The most violent was the 2-3. Uh, El Barrio, Spanish Harlem. Yeah. Above 96th Street. But back then, the 19th Precinct was rocking because even though it was a wealthy area... The bad guys knew that's where the money was. So that's where a lot of crime There was, was a lot of robberies. The 19th, I would say some months they got over 200 robberies. Wow. You know, because the bad guys from the Bronx and Brooklyn and Manhattan, <laughs> Upper Manhattan, yeah. came to the Upper East Side to get paid. That's slang for doing a robbery. Yeah. That's, you know, they were going to get paid. They went to the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, too. Well, know? that makes sense. I mean, yeah. you want to go where the money is, right? Exactly. You know, And you don't want to go where anyone's going to fight you. So most of, most of right. the people below 96th Street weren't going to fight you. You try to rob someone in Harlem, another street person, they're going to fight, you know. And, and <laughs> is that uh, like kind of petty crime, street crime, little... No, these were like knife point, gun point robberies, you know, commercial robberies. Uh -huh. There was, I mean, I came on 1985. There was a lot of crime back then. New York City was really different before Giuliani. Uh, yeah, I mean, people, I laugh because, you know, everyone now, oh, I took the subway back to Brooklyn at two. I was like, you would have not done that right. in the 80s because you would, guaranteed, you would have got robbed, knifed, killed. Something would have happened to you. you know? Yeah. Was it Giuliani kind of the turning point? It was a lot of things. You know, I think the, there was a case, I think, that sort of defined New York City. It was a kid named Brian Watkins. Uh -huh. And him and his family came to New York City from Utah to watch the u.s open okay and in times square someone tried to rob his mother he came to her defense and he got stabbed to death mm. and that sort of like enraged the entire city like are you kidding me this family comes to new york city to watch the u.s open and the, and the son gets killed and the kid was like 19 or 20 years old trying something. to protect his mom his mother, it's like yeah. the ultimate family so it sort of defined what was wrong with new york city you right know? and there was all kinds of crimes like that you know mm-hmm 
I lived in the city back then. I lived in, uh, I was like Serpico. I lived in the West Village. <laughs> My brother had a rent-controlled apartment on Barrow Street, and he moved upstate with his family. You were like Serpico, except without ratting on Yeah, I didn't rat on anybody, no, but I, got, <laughs> I didn't have the sheepdog either, you know? Right, right. And, but I got, I got the apartment, which was great. I loved the village. I loved the West so Village. So kind, you can kind of credit yourself for helping to clean up the city, can't you? Yeah, I mean, anyone that worked during those times, yeah, absolutely. I, see, I also worked six and a half years in plain clothes. Okay. which i loved it's called anti-crime and Pl- you were playing clothes so you're not in uniform you're not, not you're uniform, not in the bag. And you can go you can grow your beard you know you can grow your hair are you undercover yes yeah and you know sometimes we'd have yellow taxis we'd patrol in or you know unmarked cars oh wow. i loved i was in citywide anti-crime too which is known as street crime unit which back then was known as like this elite plain clothes unit i used to love working times square Times Square was like a it, like the the uh, play Oliver. It uh-huh. was like a school for criminals. Yeah, they would come to Times Square just to rob people. You but know? like petty stuff, like pickpocket, no, all co- uh, wolf pack robberies. That's what we used to call them back then. What's a wolf where, pack? Where like fifteen or twenty kids would just attack a whole group. Oh wow! Okay. And just rip people's. Some you know back then they used to cut your pocket open with a razor to get your wallet. Wow. You know? There was all kinds of shit, but I loved the excitement of it, you know, because we could blend in and you could actually follow a group of robbers and let them hit, you know, you you can't stop them. So we'd let them rob and then boom, all of a sudden, who are these masked men? (laughs) So did you feel safer out of the uniform? Anti-crime was real dangerous, but you know what it is? The cops that worked with you, they were really good cops. So you had to trust that they had your back and vice versa. Right. Because... Not being recognized as the police, not everyone's going to surrender to your authority. Not any, not you know, not everyone surrenders to a uniform cop's authority. Right. But you know, you, you could say police don't move, and they're like, "Hey, who the hell are you?" You know. Yeah. And but they found out who we were. <laughs> you know. So when you're working with a group of uh, undercover co- undercover officers, are you? How do you keep in touch with each other? Well, sometimes we have something called a point to point radio, and where so you you're could wired. Just, yes, you could just talk to them, but. Usually those were very unreliable, mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes you could walk around and have a group under surveillance and all of a sudden they decide that you're the person they're going to rob. Is that And good? that's pretty scary. No, that's pretty damn scary, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, street crime back in the day, they used to have a decoy unit mm-hmm. and there was with this one famous female cop named Muggable Mary. And she got mugged. She has, has a book out and everything. I think she got mugged over a thousand times. And that was, she was usually kind of the pawn in the game? Yeah, well, she was like at a phone booth, say, with her pocketbook yeah. on, you know, not holding on to it. But, and they'd have to have enough in it to make it a felony. Or else grand larceny is a felony if it's from the person. Mm-hmm. Like if, if, I, if I take your wallet and it's in your pocket, even if you have $10 in it, yeah. it's a felony because I took it off your person. But if you put your wallet down and, and then I snatch it off the counter, it's a, it's a, and you have $10 and it's a pettit larceny. Oh, wow. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, you so you to, put enough money in it to or, make it. Or credit cards. Credit cards made of the felony. What if be, she has a low deduct, like a low amount? What if it's a credit card for like a No, well, a credit card is an access device. So in grand larceny, an access device was automatically a, a felony. And really, like these days, this should be, a cell phone should be an access device. And I'm pretty sure, sure if someone... Because if someone steals your cell phone and you don't cancel it, they could bang out thousands of dollars worth of calls, right? Yeah, or get access to your bank account. Well, or yeah, or all, all kinds of or charge things, all kinds of other stuff. So 
just stealing that is is a film. Have the laws kept up with the cell phone? You know, they, because this used to be epidemic, mm-hmm. people getting their cell phone taken. I think the NYPD didn't want to catch the felony crime because right. it screws their stats. So I, they may have uh, done something with it. I'm not sure exactly what they did. They're very cognizant of, you know, they call them the seven major crimes, and they want, they're in, called index crimes. What are, what are the seven? Well, it would be murder, yeah. robbery, grand larceny, assault, burglary, and, and rape, and, of course, murder. Right. Yeah, so those, it's are like, the, those are the crimes they're concerned with. Not so, to be confused with the Ten Commandments. No, well, it's almost like that, right? It's almost, <laughs> but they're concerned with that because that's how precinct commanders are judged. Right. Like, I don't know what precinct this is. This is in Queens. or You're on the borderline Queens and Brooklyn, right? Queens, yeah. Whoever the commanding officer is here, he wants to keep his index crimes down. And if they go up, he may get dumped out of his from his command. Because it shows he's not keeping he's the not. Yeah, safe. he's not doing the necess- moving the necessary chess pieces to address right. his crimes, you know? What's the... What is the first craziest or scariest thing that happened to you when you started? Well, you know something? It's funny. You wanted to something like that led up to it. Actually, a month before I came on the police department, uh-huh. I was held up at gunpoint. And what, what happened, and it's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. I lived in Stuyvesant Town off of um, 14th and 1st Avenue. Actually, 14th and Avenue A. Mm-hmm. And my roommate... Uh, his girlfriend with his two kids from a previous marriage it gets very involved in all the different players yeah she was shopping over by 14th street and some guy followed her into the elevator and st- pulled a gun on her in the elevator and she said listen here's 500 dollars and a gold chain and he said no baby we're going up to your apartment oh so like yeah exactly like what did he have in mind on the 12th floor I was waiting to take the elevator down with my brother. We both tended bar at Pete's Tavern on 18th Street. You know okay. what that is? Yeah. This was a month before I came on the police department. So the elevator door opens, and we're looking at this scene. This woman, Phyllis, and these two kids, and his, the bad guy who has a bag of groceries covering a gun. So I don't know he has a gun, but I could see their terrified faces. Yeah. So she says... Billy, would you help me with my keys? I'm having problems with my keys to the apartment. I'm like, something's really wrong here. Yeah. So I open the apartment. The guy drops the bag and sticks the gun in my face. I'm like, oh, shit. You're like, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to get me involved in yeah. this. <laughs> you know? So anyway, he starts robbing. But my brother was still in, in the hallway. And my brother was 5'11", about 235, like scary, uh-huh. like a weightlifter, real yeah. scary looking, you know? Yeah. This guy was terrified of him, you know. Even with the gun, he was like this. He goes, call that guy in the hall. So he, I call him in. He he comes in. He, my brother's like, oh, shit. You know, when you see a gun, you're like, it's not like on TV. Yeah. Where people are like, go ahead, motherfucker, pull the trigger. That, that's not what happens. Yeah. You know. No, it's much more real. Yeah, yeah you're scared shit, you know. So he starts to rob us. And then he says, all right, take your pants off. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And he says, take your belt off. So I take my belt off. He's going to start tying us up. And I'm like, this robbery is fucking over. Uh-huh. Because I am not getting tied up. Yeah. Everything about getting tied up and what happens after that is bad. Yeah. So I took my opportunity. He was moving the gun back and forth. I hit him a shot across his chest and grabbed for the gun. With your fist? No, I hit him a forearm across his chest. Mm-hmm. At the same time, grabbed for the gun. And he started firing at us immediately. Wow. He fired four shots, and my brother, who I had tied his hands behind his back, like enough like that a four-year-old child could have got out, right? Yeah. 
he hit both of us like with a body block and i'm still holding on to the gun and the guy's firing it my brother got hit in the stomach oh wow anyway he knocks us both to the ground and we fought this guy for like probably you know it seemed like a long time, like three to five minutes to get the gun out of his hand. He was just holding on he to would, it. He knew once that gun was out of his hand, he was, du- he was dead. Yeah. So we got the gun. We beat the fuck out of him. <laughs> and then the, the police came. Yeah. And that was a month before I came on the police department. So I was like, the worst thing that could ever have to be happened before I went on. You know? Had you known that you wanted to be? Oh, yeah. I had taken the test. I was just waiting to go to get sworn in. So you had some training going into that mugging. No, I, I was a bartender. Okay. I, I was a bartender. Yeah, different kind of training. I had college degree, but that didn't right. teach I, me I, I'm anything. not sure that helps in the mugging. No, no. And, you know, that was like a scary thing, you know. And, uh, you know, and I had it, shit like that happen on the police department, too. Not where I was fired at, but, you know, close so you, to you it. you got hit with a bullet? I didn't. I felt the bullets flying by me because mm-hmm. I, had, I had a hold of his arm. Yeah. Like, you could feel... The uh, the air rushing out of the end of the gun too. Uh-huh, yeah, I felt that. I was like, "That's not good," you know. To feel that's, it. that's close. And it was only a twenty two. Uh huh. So th- you could feel the power of it, and I didn't know immediately that my brother got hit until mm. you know we got knocked to the ground, and he because he was so strong even after he got he fought till you know till at some point he you know got like light on his feet. Right. But I was. I mean, if you ever wanted to have someone with you doing something like that he was the guy he wanted that with you you know yeah. he was like forget about it and a, and a, a brother so you know he's gonna yeah he, gonna and he him. was you know he he, he he was first of all he was strong as a bull mm-hmm. and he was fearless you know so unfortunately he took the bullet i thought i was gonna take a bullet because i was the first one to jump the guy but wow. he, did he survive he did yeah he but you know something people don't realize when you get shot it's not just the physical damage. It's psychologically. People have like, yeah. you just think to yourself, that guy tried to kill me. Yeah. And the guy who shot him was out on parole for murder. Just got out. Wow. So he was like a bad guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I had a close friend that was shot with two bullets. And uh, they got one out, but the second one just wouldn't come out. They until... leave it there usually if it's near a dangerous, you know, it's, if it's too dangerous to take out. Yeah, and then maybe six years later, it started to come out. He felt a pain in his ribs, Oof. and it was behind his rib. They had to pry his ribs open oh, or something man. to get it out. That's where my, my brothers were. They kept it. They left it there. They did. Yeah, because they, they said it, it, it's too dangerous to take the, it out. And the body will naturally try and expel it. Yeah, but sometimes it also just adjusts to it and it grows tissue around it or whatever. But my friend was never the same after that. Psychologically, Psychologically. Yeah. He, yeah, he would sweat. We'd, we'd walk by certain people, and if he sensed any kind of danger, he would just sweat. Yeah. And I would say to him, hey, man, you got to relax. You're going to get us, and you're gonna, we're going to become the targets. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. people prey they on sense, fear. Yeah, they sense your fear. Yeah, you have fear. Yeah, and then he had but to, I used to tell people about that, too, that it was hard to explain is that People know, like, I used to ride on the subway and, and or just walk on the street, and people know by the way you walk and your confidence mm-hmm. that you got a gun. They could fucking tell. You know what I mean? Does that make you safer or less No, safe? it makes you safer. It yeah. makes you definitely safer, because there's times where I see people that they looked at me, and, and, they, and I was like, yeah? And they, they know just by your that confidence yeah. that, like, no, not him, man. Don't. Well, you're, you're also a big guy. Yeah, but I, I one time, well, it was funny, that in the village one time, I was walking my girlfriend home from a, a restaurant called Blazing Salads. It was right on <laughs> Sheridan Square. Sounds dangerous. Yeah, it sounds like a dangerous <laughs> place. 
But I, it was about one o'clock in the morning, and I was walking it down Grove Street. And uh-huh. Grove is a very dark block. There's, uh-huh. They used to have the pink teacup, the restaurant there. Okay. And I look on the other side of the street, and there's like five or six guys, and they look at, they look at each other, and they give themselves, and they split up. Mm. which i recognize as the robbery formation you know yeah you so you saw it coming i saw it coming and i looked at her and i said oh they're gonna try to rob me and <laughs> and she she like i could see she like turned white and i pulled my gun off my ankle and i said go ahead guys give it you and they went whoa boom like fucking gazelles they just took off you nice know? they saw the gun that was the police some police training and experience oh yeah i could tell well look you you don't have to have police training to know when you're in danger. Yeah, you know? sense it. You could see it. I mean, I saw it before. But yeah, I was good at that, though. That's why I got into anti-crime early in my career, because I was good at spotting stuff on the street. Where'd you grow up? Long Island, actually. Okay. Well, I was born in Queens, Flushing, Queens, but I moved out to Long Island when I was like five years old. So, you, so you're, you know, you, you grew up coming into the city, got some Yeah, you know, my father was a New York City cop. So, oh, your dad was? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then my younger brother was a cop for like four years or five he but he didn't like it and he quit he same left. brother no no a different brother different brother okay so he he didn't like it and he quit so we were f- somewhat from i guess maybe you could say a civil service family mike i grand- noticed you, you're talking about a lot of people in the past tense you have a lot of uh relatives that passed away no but well, my brother did the one that got shot he did and, huh? but it had nothing to do with that incident okay but um uh Sorry, my wife should have turned it off. Um, and my other brother, he he just um, he he left the police department just because he didn't like it. He he didn't like the politics. He didn't like the bullshit. You know. Yeah, you you did about twenty seven years. Is that a certain number where you get some sort of benefit? Well, when I at, when I had, um, I guess I did almost ten years in homicide. So when I had like seventeen, seventeen and change on the job, I went to homicide, mm-hmm. and I loved the work. I was really, I was like, this is the best place, and I can make a lot of overtime there. I'd make like four hundred, four hundred fifty hours a year overtime. Nice. So that's what contributed to me having a pension that's over six figures now. You know, very nice because I worked more than twenty years. Mm-hmm. So if you go every year you go past twenty you get another sixtieth added to your pension. Okay. Plus I was working crazy overtime and so but then I I left because the job just got to be such bullshit. So much politics and so much bureaucracy. Yeah. Just beyond and But not a street kind of danger like when you started. No, and you know something we went from when I first went to homicide and I I tell a joke about this. When I first went to homicide in 2002, we had 165 murders that year mm-hmm. in Manhattan North. And when I left in 2011, we only had 50. And it sounds funny, but that's one of the reasons I left. For New York City, that sounds pretty good. It was the whole Manhattan North, the yeah. whole north of Manhattan. And it was just like, because the job wasn't exciting anymore. We weren't, you know, I mean, I know it sounds crazy. Yeah. But that, it was boring. And when, when what you do becomes so diminished... A, a, everyone wants to put their hands in it. You know what I mean? Like the big bosses at one police plaza wanted to run the major investigations. Uh-huh. Instead everyone, letting, was, everyone was getting a little bored. Well, the chief and, every, you know, they all wanted, and the other thing is everything you did was under a microscope. Right. You know, instead of, when it was crazy, no one, let, let them do it. This, this shit's crazy. Let right. them do it, you know. But then when it got manageable, all of a sudden everyone that was an inside puke we used to call them wanted to put their hands on it you know yeah oh i know how to investigate a murder you know and it got it just got crazy and in the politics of it everything became a checklist mm-hmm. 
the basic dozen investigative steps, you know. And you had to do all those. So it was almost like, you know, you were fixing a car engine or something, you know. Right. You had to do these 12 steps. And it got, it got crazy. And I had, I had enough. Less you know? about a gritty kind of instinct sort of. Yeah. Now everything was, if you follow this, it's like almost like being a cook. If you follow this recipe, you'll get right. tremendous like, results. I got into this to get creative and not just follow the same right. recipe. Follow this stupid checklist. And it's not necessarily true because... Police work is instinctual, like right. you said, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. It's connections. And a lot of it is talking to people, especially mm -hmm. detective work. If you have a good rapport on the street and people trust you, they'll come up to you and give you information, you know? And that's solved. I can tell you how many cases that solves, just having a good rapport with people throughout on the street. And people want to talk to you because they want to make their community Right, safer. yes, yeah. But they don't want to be a rat either. Right. So if they can tell you something and not have to get involved... And, and you're happy with that. Yes, there's an art form to that, too, because, of course, if this is smoking gun information, everyone's going to want to know who this person is, you know, yeah, including the district attorney. You know, and then, Oh, you got to tell them. Yeah, well, let's destroy this person's life. So you're allowed to come, come back with information and not reveal your source. Well, to protect the person, you have to say, I just heard this from the street, but it not, you know, Right. There's no one. I don't even know the guy's name. He said, "Look at so and so," you know, and then you could protect the person. Right. Sometimes you might have to get the person involved. It's that crucial, you know. Mm. And then you feel like you've kind of screwed them over. Yeah, you do. You know, you feel. And sometimes people have to get moved out of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know that the, the snitches get stitches is real. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. People do get killed for talking to the police. So, yeah. You know, it's not as easy as being, you know, some suburban guy that said, I saw the guy who shot uh, <laughs> that man, you know. Right. These people live in the same neighborhoods with the people doing the crimes. Yeah. They see you on the street. Yeah. And everyone knows everybody. And, yeah. you know, yeah, it's so snitches get stitches is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one thing you different you see in the city that you don't see in the suburbs. People in the city, especially in kind of like uh, more crime-ridden areas, they tend to be out and about more. They tend to know everybody's business more. Yeah. Than in the suburbs, it seems, where everyone's kind of in their own home. I used to laugh when, you know, some of my detectives, when they'd interview people, he'd never ask the guy where he lives. He'd ask him where you're staying at. Mm. Because in the hood, people had more places to stay than <laughs> anywhere else in the world. <laughs> oh, sometimes I stay here. Sometimes I stay there. Sometimes I, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm like, dude. You don't even work a job, but you got like 10 different residences, you know? <laughs> He's got vacation homes. <laughs> got baby's mamas all over the place, you right. know? Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> so uh, should we talk about a formative experience that you had? Well, you know, I also, I, I was a college professor for, mm -hmm. for 10 years. I just, I just stopped teaching in April. Uh, Why did you stop? I had enough of it, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, for now anyway, I don't really want to do it. And I, and I wanted to, you know, do more comedy okay. and acting. Uh, I, I've been on, um, there's a TV show called The Perfect Murder on Investigation Discovery. I saw that in, uh, on your, when I was researching you. You're, you played a, you have a re lead role in that. Well, I, f four times I played a, the lead detective. Mm-hmm. And twice I played myself, Sergeant on Cannon Channel. from, yes, Investigation Discovery. Nice. And one, there's another, we have one, in the on the books that's not out yet it's coming out in uh august on the discovery channel yeah the discovery channel uh, well it's it, investigation discovery the discovery is more of the nature programs right right <laughs> investigation discovery are these homicide recreation shows cool yeah so no it, it's been interesting and the way i got into that too was really funny um 
I started seeing on uh, Facebook all these guys I know on this TV show called The Perfect Murder. Mm-hmm. And the guy, one of the producers, Rick Torelli, was a, a detective in Manhattan South Homicide, which is the South Homicide. We used to call them, you know, the, uh, the caviar and shrimp homicide unit because they hardly have any murders in the South, but they dress much better than the guys in the North and they always eat better, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so he was one of the producers. So I just messaged him on Facebook one day. I said, hey, uh, Rick, could I uh, be on your show? Nice. And he goes, yeah, come in for an audition. I came in for an audition. He goes, you're, you're uh, the lead on the next episode. <laughs> I was like, wow, that was easy. Great. You yeah. Because, I mean, acting is so hard, which I've found out since then. Yeah. Nothing that, was as easy as that, you know? Right. Like, act, acting naturally can be the hardest thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, but, well, the first episode I did, there was no real script. We just made up the dialogue, which was easy. Mm-hmm. Now there's a strict script and they stick to it and you got to, you know, they don't give you much time to lay your lines either. Mm-hmm. We started shooting on a Monday. They handed me the script of a hundred something pages on Thursday. So there you are like right before the scene trying to get your lines down, you know, or, or semblance close to what you're going to be saying. So you see this as kind of a turning point in your life? You know, y- yes and no. I mean, I don't ha- like if I wasn't, if I didn't have a pension, say, and if my wife didn't have a great job, yeah, I would feel pressure to make money sure. at this. But I don't have any pressure. So, but I'm still so competitive and so Type A that I want to. I get mad when oh, I should. That's not the right word. I get frustrated yeah. when I don't have work. Sure, you know what I mean. What's your purpose? Wanna, right, I want to work. You know, I want to work. I auditioned for this other uh, show. It's supposed to be a web series, a ten-part web series. And it's supposed to start shooting in May, and it's called Mob Mentality, and I play a detective. Mm-hmm. But I'm always suspect till it starts shooting, because they're still trying to raise the money for it. Oh, yeah, and the entertainment Anything industry. can happen, you know? Yeah. So I just say, you know, I'm cast in the part. We'll see if it actually No, opportunities forward. don't... You can't celebrate an opportunity till it already happened. Right. <laughs> it's, <laughs> already, it's already I aired. Am, and I'm not... You know, and there's an, um, actually Richie Romano... Mm-hmm. Uh, does the last name sound familiar? Yeah, Ray Romano. His brother Ray. Yeah, mm-hmm. Richie worked in the two three precinct. Cool. So he was on patrol his whole career, but now he's uh, doing making movies, and he made a movie called The Investigator. And I watched a little bit of it on online. Same. I was talking to him on the other so I said, told him what I'm doing. He goes, Well, he goes, he goes, Why don't you audition for my next movie? I said, I would love to. But again, he didn't say, I'm giving you a part. I'll, no, I, I'm going to give you an audition. You, you got to audition. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I'd love to. So, but again, he's trying to raise the money. No one, mm-hmm. no one has any money in this business, you know? Yeah. It's expensive to make a... Yeah. Yeah. So you're doing stand-up comedy now. And one thing I learned from doing stand-up comedy is that you learn a lot about people. Like I've gotten to the point where I can be on stage and look out at an audience and kind of tell who's in a relationship. Just like you said, you could tell who's carrying a gun. Yeah. I could tell who's in a relationship, who's single, how long people have been together. You kind of get a, a third sense of people. Right. Uh, uh, and I imagine being a police officer, you probably get that to the max. Like, as a police officer, could you walk down the street and kind of look around and tell who's a criminal? Well, you know, something that's funny is like in anti-crime, that's what you did. Everything was based on observation. Yeah. So people think that, oh, what's so hard about driving down the street in a car and spotting someone that's going to do it? I go, you you should try it one day. Mm -hmm. It's not so damn easy. It's like having a huge screen and looking at a movie screen and watching people based 
on their movements and their eye movement and did that guy just turn around on that couple that just passed them you know what i mean that's right. how we would sometimes sometimes spot robbers yeah because usually someone walks past you and you don't turn around and look at them but if you're looking to do a robbery you might turn around and then you might stop and then you may start following them right do you, do you get some sort of training on body language and eye movements because well, they, they you say learn a lot about it you know what i was but i became really good at um i was a excellent pickpocket uh undercover uh-huh. i just got really good at it and because there's some good pickpockets in this city professional pickpockets. yeah professional pickpockets and a lot of times you know they work as teams mm-hmm. and some of them are ethnically based colombians <laughs> they're just trained to do that in their country and they right. come here and they ply their trades on the streets of manhattan or queens or shopping malls and they're good yeah you know and I, to to spot them a lot of times i would look at their eyes because they love to work in crowds. Right. So most people aren't looking down. Most people are looking straight ahead. Mm-hmm. When I see someone looking down, I'm like, that would raise me right up. Because I'd be in the crowd too, you know? What's he looking down He's for? He's looking Just- either at the pocketbook where he can open the zipper and take out the wallet. Uh-huh. Or someone's wallet, you know, or a backpack. I've seen, you know. Oh, backpacks are better. Backpacks easy. are very easy. But they don't know what they're going to get out of a backpack. You know, right. a pocketbook usually has a wallet in it. Mm. And... They usually work in teams because one person is the distraction. Right. And the other person, because, you know, if you open a zipper, someone may hear it or whatever, but if the other person distracts yeah. the mark, then it's easier for the... That's kind of pick. an old school small grift. You, one person kind of bumps into the guy. Yeah, and then- the, the, the distraction can take... And they should actually have people in Times Square would spray you with mustard. And you're like, people will be like, what the hell is... Yeah. And then it's, another person comes up with napkins. Yeah. And while the other person is removing your wallet from your pocketbook, I or just your, saw that grift on a show called The Imposters. That the, really with happens. The mustard, yeah. yeah, that really happens. You know, that seems pretty obvious. If I want to get sprayed with mustard, I'm definitely looking. But if out you for get mustard. yeah, but if you get sprayed with mustard, you're so like, you're like what the you're like you're so perplexed by it. Like what? The, how the hell did I? Why did I just get sprayed with mustard? Yeah, how does that even happen? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, people don't immediately think, oh. Check my wallet, you know, they're thinking about the mustard, you yeah. know. So now that you're retired, do you walk down the street and feel any sense of responsibility? You know, I don't anymore, man. I did my time. And I'm not saying if I saw someone get robbed that I wouldn't intervene, but I'm not looking to get involved with anything, you know. I mean, when I was a rookie cop, and that's how I got into plain clothes, I made an off-duty bank robbery arrest, and the guy had a sort-off M1 30 carbine. And this was on the Upper West Side. And everyone always tells you, never get involved off-duty. And I, and I did. And luckily, everything went okay. But I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to do that. You well, know. Can, what happened? Can you tell me the story? Yeah, I was walking. I was just, I had just actually been out sick. I had surgery. And it was, it was my first day coming back to work. It was like a beautiful July day. And 79th in Amsterdam, there used to be a manufacturer's handover on the south uh, west side of the street. An old bank. Yeah. Yeah. And I see everyone, I'm on the corner there, and I see everyone running out of the bank screaming. So I run up to this woman. I go, miss, what happened? She goes, this guy just stuck up the bank. I go, no kidding. I go, which way did he go? So she goes, he, he ran straight this way. So I, I have my little five shot on my ankle. I pull it off my ankle. I'm running up the street. And this lady goes, you're the police? I go, yeah. She goes, he's in this building, right? Oh. I remember it was 124 West 79th Street. Uh-huh. So I go into the building, and he's... He's changing his clothes, like in a near a freight elevator. You saw him. Yeah, I see him. So I'm like, "Police, come out with your hands up!" Right? As I do that, these two 
Upper West Side has come out of the elevator right in the line of fire on oh, my no. gun. So I scream at them, get the fuck back. Yeah. So they, they're like, oh. So the guy comes you're, out. You're not in uniform. No, I'm in plain clothes, and I'm wearing the geekiest. I'm wearing white pants, this real <laughs> geeky shirt, you know? I don't even look like a cop. You know, I look like a surfer or something. <laughs> anyway, so he comes out with his hands up. He's got, like, cornrows. Uh-huh. And he has his shirt off, and he's got, like, an S tattoo, like, for Superman. But you ever see a prison tattoo where it's, the skin just becomes elevated? It looks like a burn mark. Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he like had. Like a branding. Yeah, it was like a branding tattoo. Uh-huh. So as he's coming out at me, and I, I said, put your hands in the air. I have my gun, and I have my arm like, like we were taught. It's called close combat position in case he tries to get so my you gun. You put one arm out my while left the other arm, my arm, oh, the gun near my right hip. Why do you do that? Because in case he tries to jump me, I, I can push him away before you know, I don't have to shoot him. Okay. He goes to try to get my gun. It's, it's, it's tactical. It's called close combat position. Cool. Anyway, as I'm doing that, I hear a uniform cop yell, drop the gun oh, to me. And I'm like, dude, I'm, 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 I said, I'm a cop. I'm, he goes, drop it. I go, I'm not dropping my gun. I said, I have my shields in my left pocket. I'll throw it back to you, but I'm, I'm not. He goes, he's like, don't turn around. I thought he was going to shoot me, you know? Yeah. So I just tossed my shield back. And it seemed like a couple of seconds later, some cops from my precinct came in. They go, that's kind of, he's a cop. Yeah. So they all came in, and the guy had like the $1,200 that he got from the bank. Whoa. He had an M130 carbine in his bag. He was just changing his clothes. But luckily, when you crept up on him, he didn't have his gun No, in his he, he had it probably in the, he put it in the uh, duffel bag. Nice. And um, so anyway, back then, you know, criminals knew, change your clothes, and then you're not, that's not the same description as the people said. Right. So that they used to do that all the time. So in fact, you would arrest a perp back then, and you would have three or four sets of clothes on. Perp stands for perpetrator. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. And and they would just peel off the first la- layer, and now they totally different. Yeah, why wouldn't he have two layers on? Just peel the first one off and keep going. Right, that's what they that's what they used to do. But this guy stopped in a building. It was taking. Well, he all was his- going to change his clothes. Well, because he was a little more visible too. Uh-huh. He was going to change his clothes and, you know, just, I guess, get in a cab or something. He, get, he had 1200 bucks. <laughs> he could afford a cab. Yeah, he, didn't, he couldn't take an Uber back then. Though. Yeah. There was no Ubers. <laughs> probably not a good idea to rob a bank and call an Uber. <laughs> no, probably not. But, yeah, that was that, actually, that arrest actually got me into anti-crime. And I, was, I had a year and a half on the job at the time, and they put me in plain clothes, which is unheard of. You know? Why? Because they, they well, saw Well, because you're, you're still on probation, really. You know, well, that, that actually was my... The first six months I was in this precinct, I made like five or six robbery arrests, and the commanding officer was Louis Anamone, who became the chief of department years uh-huh. later. He was like so impressed by it, he put me in anti-crime, which was probably too soon, because I probably should... So wait, six arrests in how long? A month? Uh, no, in like six months. Uh, six robbery arrests. Okay. I had more than six arrests, but like right. gunpoint robbery arrests. So oh, we were wow. like, we got to put this guy in anti-crime, you know. You, so, you ever been shot? That that time I was the only time I was shot at was the before I came on the police department. Okay. I've been around gunfire on the street that wasn't specifically shot at me, but right. like just where shots were fired, you know, you don't know who the bullets for. Yeah, they call that the bullet fairy. <laughs> you, you look know? down at your you stomach and, check and, you, it. and you hit. Yeah, have you done that? Look down and be like, is it me? Anyone you ever talk to that's been shot, mm-hmm. tell you how much it burns. Because mm-hmm. if you know. The makeup of a bullet, you know, it, it's an explosion in the bullet and flame comes out of the end of the gun. Yeah. So it's burning hot. Aren't, so when, those the, aren't there the bullets too that when they hit, they, they, they splat? Expa- they can expand. Yeah. Those are, uh, they, it's called mushroom. 
Okay. The police department bullets in the nine mil they're designed to mushroom because what they want to do, them to do is to stop the person. They don't want to, it to hit you and go through you and hit somebody else. Right, right. So they're designed to mushroom, and then it does more damage inside of you, but it also, the intention is to stop the, the threat. You yeah. Know? But it's not a good thing to get hit with something like that, you know? I would imagine not. Well, nothing's good to get hit with, but especially not a bullet. You know? you, you've seen uh, your fair share of dead bodies? Yeah, I mean, you know, we used to... Uh, I would say, you know, it's hard to say, oh, I went to this many murders, but I would say I probably went to, you know, 300 murder scenes, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard, and shootings, we used to, we used to get shootings like all the time, it was so commonplace uptown, you know, mm-hmm. oh, we got a shooting, Where, where's the guy hitting the leg, oh, shit, <laughs> you know what I mean, because you know, a leg shot, the, the less severe like the shooting is, the less cooperation you get, right, for whatever reason, like it's easier to solve a homicide than a shooting, why do you think that is? Because no one cooperates in, in a shooting. People are just like, hey, he's out there. He's he's playing. He's playing in that game. He, he gets shot too bad, you know? Mm-hmm. But with a murder, people are a little more, you know, cooperative. and Maybe um, a little more scared and they want to get the murderer Yeah, off. you know, they, people cooperate a little more. But shootings, no one gives us, no one cares, you know? Mm-hmm. But we used to get, you know... We used to get shootings all practically, I, I can't say every night, but a lot. We got a lot. How do you, ha- so you've seen bodies bloodied up and just probably horrible disfigurements? Well, you know something, one of the worst things probably that anyone worked was uh, 9-11. You know, oh, and yeah. I worked in the morgue after 9-11. Not every day, but I did probably. What do you mean you worked in the morgue? When The, the, the morgue by NYU. That's where the New York City medical exam, where they brought the bodies in. The dead bodies. Yes, and I never, ever saw such horrendous stuff in my life as oh, I saw the, of the bodies they brought in there. You, you know, they would So they were in, uncovered. You were seeing the bodies. Yeah, because there was a whole protocol. They would open up the body bag. Sometimes it would just be a foot. Wow. You know, and they would photograph it, x-ray it, and take DNA. Mm-hmm. Because that foot may be the only closure... Something that a family gets, has yeah. that they that's that might be what they bury right they may not find anything else because a lot of the bodies according to uh, the chief medical examiner at the time charles hirsch mm-hmm. he gave a couple of um big talks after 9-11 he said a lot of families want to know why can't you find my loved one he he or she was in that building and he said I, i'm not you're not going to like this explanation but it, this is the explanation I'm going to give you. Many people were just were vaporized. He goes, never in the history of mankind was that amount of force falling straight down mm-hmm. to the point that it left a five-story hole in the ground. So you can imagine some people just... The skin is burnt up. All the bones are just ground crushed. Yeah, into like powder and dust. And yeah, they just never... Wow. You know, and that was his explanation. You know, But w- getting back to it, a lot of the bodies we saw were just in horrendous condition. Yeah. How do you, how do you process that? And- you know, I was I thought that was pretty hard because you know, first of all, when you see something like that, and you also get the smell of it, which is horrendous. Right. When I worked at the morgue, I would take the mask I had. I would just take a glob of Vicks and put it on the inside of the mask and put mm-hmm. it on because mm-hmm. 
the smell of the body was so horrible right that that could mask it a little bit you know yeah and the smell can get oh, gets, yeah, oh yeah that's all part of it yeah it's definitely all part of it and then we would work at um fresh kills uh in staten island what is fresh fresh kills, kills was this is this big dump that's not the blazing uh salads right no, no, <laughs> not not no. similar at all. They're very, very different. <laughs> Fresh Kills is a dump in Staten Island, and they would take all the debris from the World Trade Center uh-huh. and put it on a barge and float it downriver to Fresh Kills, offload it, and these big, huge machines would sift through all of the steel and the rock and all, everything for bodies and body parts. And full bodies were found in the debris at Fresh Kills. Wow. And, you know, body parts. Mm-hmm. So we would work there, too. And, like, you, when you talk about unhealthy environments, you look at the water on the ground, you know, from rain and stuff, and it's it looks like the Adams family. Mm-hmm. It's smoke coming out, and it's bubbling. Right. Because it's from all the methane gas. And What's the methane gas from? From all the garbage that's been buried under the ground. Uh-huh. You know, it just, I don't know, somehow ferments and... It makes methane gas. Right. And that comes out of the ground. Also, you're exposed to all these other things, the um, uh, asbestos. The World Trade Center was loaded with asbestos. Right. It's old construction. Yeah. And we didn't have masks that were, in, at least in the beginning, that met that threat of the asbestos. That's why so many 9-11 workers are dying of really weird cancers right yeah, now. Yeah, respiratory problems. Yeah. I I get checked at least twice a year. I go to the... Mount Sinai Hospital to do that. But there's a lot of people that have died already from it. Yeah. You know, and strange cancers that they've, uh, they haven't seen before, you know. Like new, new strains. Yeah, new strains, like stuff like, whoa, this is like really crazy, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if they even know how to treat it, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you still see some of these images in your head? You know, not, not too much. I mean, I guess what you're asking about, do you think I have PTSD? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think everyone that's seen a lot of death has a level of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's all how you process it. Yeah. Every once in a while you think of something, you know, and or, or, or an image will come into your head. Like I've written some like monologues for my acting class mm-hmm. and I talk about some of the stuff and the class is always like, like riveted, like you don't seem like you did that you know what i mean right that really happened to you and uh, yeah you know and they're sort of mesmerized by the experiences because most actors don't have that you know especially when you talk about death or having to go tell someone that i did a monologue where i had to tell a woman that her only son had just been shot to death and this is a true yeah it's a true story Yeah. yeah and she didn't speak english and I speak so little Spanish that it was so hard to communicate with her. Mm-hmm. And at some point, that's what the monologue was about. At some point, she understood what I was telling her. Oh, wow. And it became, you know, like a really heavy situation. And if you ever make a notification to someone that someone has died, at some point in the notification when they understand, you become the enemy. Yeah, because it's like the king shooting the messenger. Yes, you're you're the messenger. Yeah. And once they got the message, they have no use for you anymore, and they want you out of their house. Wow. And it's a, it's a, it's a weird, for for the person giving mm-hmm. the notification. It's almost you feeling like they're directing their anger and sadness at you. But it, it's understandable, though, if you right. think about it. Yeah. 
but it's really a hard thing to deal with you know but you're like wow you know i didn't do anything wow you know i feel so horrible i get to tell that lady that you know yeah but it's you know it's a weird human psychological thing we do yeah but it's so understandable you yeah. know but uh yeah when i told i did a monologue on that to my class they were all like wow <laughs> you know so do you think talking about it and uh you know doing acting and stand-up is there's Therape- a reason therapeutic you think yeah <laughs> well there's a reason you're talking about all this stuff yeah, no, I think, you know, something, I've only been doing comedy now for four years, which mm-hmm. really is, in the in the whole big picture of comedy, it's no time at all. Still, it's still a baby. Yeah, I'm it. still like a rookie, and I recognize that, because there's it, so much to it, and it, it takes so long, but some older comics have told me, is they said, you know, you keep going, they go, people really like your point of view, they like your, um, what's that called, um, your voice, your, your voice, right? They like mm-hmm. you. They like your voice. Where, yeah. you know, where, uh, you know, a twenty-two-year-old comic with no life experience is talking about his dick for the first four years. Exactly. You know, yeah, you have real life experiences. I said, yeah, that is interesting, but sometimes it's hard to make it funny. Still, you know what I mean? Sure, it still is hard. Yeah, people can be riveted by a story, but if you tell stories and it's, they're not funny, that's mm-hmm. not comedy. And also, know? if it has too much emotion behind it, still. Which, when I saw you, uh, it didn't seem like that. Right. But, you know, there's like uh, tragedy plus time. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a fine line. You, you know, need some, the time. Yeah, some people could be like, that was so inappropriate. <laughs> I didn't like that. You know? Right, right. That was too real. What are you going to talk <laughs> about dead people for? You know? <laughs> well, that's your life. Yeah. That's your experience. But, you know, it's, it's everyone likes interesting stories. I, for me, I'm more of a comic that tells stories with jokes then mm-hmm. i'm not like a joke teller mm-hmm. you ever see someone that just wheels off like 10 jokes and i, I that's not me yeah i'm one, not, I'm not one a one liner yeah i'm not yeah but that's it's interesting watching you because your premise and your setup and your story like it's already interesting so it has my attention well I, i'm glad to hear that <laughs> so the jokes are just like a little treat yeah you know? <laughs> yeah well, you know, I know you know my nephew, Mike. Mike, mm-hmm. Mike. I know his comedy, yeah. Yeah, he, he's a funny guy. And when I first used to watch him when he first started, I, I always thought he had great presence, mm-hmm. but I never thought he had great material. Mm-hmm. But now, his material's caught up to his presence, and he's, his material's pretty good now. Is that because he got more life experience? I think so. I yeah. think so, because the first, maybe I saw him when he was doing it three years or four years or five years, and I was just like, you know, his stuff is just too to me it was real juvenile right but now i think he's really grown and his his material's interesting to you know to all different types of audiences did you feel that way as an op- as a more experienced officer seeing new new officers just start you see their mistakes you see you know something they- i've always liked um to be like a a teacher cuz i had i had good mentors on the police department people mm-hmm. that took me under their wing but well, looking at your your biography too it seemed like you were made kind of a supervisor and head of departments a lot head of homicide well head of- no i wasn't actually a lieutenant was our commanding officer okay. i had a team in homicide but i was a commanding officer of like a robbery unit you yeah. could do that as a so you could actually be the commanding officer of a homicide as a sergeant but when you're the commanding officer you don't get to play as much because you got to do all the administrative stuff. I wanted right. to play. You know, right, I wanted right. to go out and do the work. You know, I wanted to be on the street. I didn't want to do. 
I was never, I always hated the paper, you know? Are, are you kind of looked down upon by the officers that are on the street? Because like, Psh, look at that wuss. He's behind no, the no, desk. They, 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 look, he, guys on patrol, they look at homicide like you walk on water uh-huh. because they know how long it takes to get there. Right. For res- most detectives, it takes 15 to 20 years to get into homicide. Mm-hmm. It took me as a boss 17 years I had. So, and then I did almost 10 there. But no, they definitely, they know you don't, they don't just put anyone in homicide. Mm-hmm. You're one of the best investigators or one of the best at what you do or else you wouldn't be in there, you know? Being an officer for so long, do you have an ex- uh, a, an opinion on the prison system? Is it rehabilitating people? Is it just you know, holding them? Look, I, I think that they got to try everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like I do a joke uh, in stand-up where I talk about uh, I have two sons and one year they were both in college together. Mm-hmm. And that year it cost me $84,000 oh to pay God. their tuition. You yeah. know? And then our governor, Cuomo, yeah. wants the state taxpayers to pay for state prison inmates to go to college for free mm-hmm. while they're in state prison. So when my kids came up for the summer, I told them I wanted them to do a stick-up and, <laughs> and get caught in like three years. You know, of course, it's a joke, but... yeah. But in essence, I don't think it's a bad idea because if you can turn that guy life around who's in prison yeah. and through education so he never again commits a crime and he goes and he makes something of himself and then he becomes a taxpayer and a good citizen, right? that money was well spent. It's an know? investment. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so because all anyone, almost anyone that goes to prison is coming out someday. Mm-hmm. And if they don't learn something from their experience... Or turn the light. They're going to just go back to what they were doing. Did you see a lot of repeat offenders? Oh, yeah. Spanish Harlem was like, you know, that place had generations of the same people going to prison. Yeah. Coming back home, going back in. I think it had the most parolees almost of anywhere in the city. Well, you're like, I used to arrest your dad yeah, all the well, time. Yeah, that, well, that actually happened. Right. That actually happened. You know, there was guys, um, there was a detective there that everyone used to call Blondie. He was there for almost 30 years in the two, three. Now he's in homicide. <laughs> but p- generations of people would go, Blondie! You know, yeah. They knew him because he, <laughs> he started there in his 20s, you know? Yeah. And it's it's crazy. But yeah, you see you see generations of people. And you, you hope that, you know, it doesn't because Just like public housing. The p- should people live there for generations? Well, they, their goal should be get the hell out of there. Right. You know what I mean? But yeah. certain places, it's like, a Manhattan apartment. No, you don't. You don't care where it is these days. I'm going to stay there. You in know? Manhattan, it's so the rents are so expensive that to get from a housing, you know, from a housing place to a, your own, your own apartment, it's not a baby step. It's a no, huge it's, leap. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, maybe you do what my parents did. You move to the suburbs, right? Exactly. You know, and try yeah. to get out of the city. You know, I I was born in uh, Flushing. My mother was from Astoria. My father was from Flatbush, Brooklyn, you know. Mm-hmm. Actually, he was from Bed-Stuy. And, you know, they knew they had to get out of the city back then. Yeah. So we moved to Long Island. That was the only way they could own a house, you know. Right. Manhattan is not affordable for, unless, you know, what does the two-bedroom apartment go for in Manhattan? $3,000 a month, 3500 a month? At least, yeah. So, you know, how is that affordable? So you know? to come from the housing projects... You you have to move out of the city and basically start all over. You have to quit your job. Yeah, you'd you probably have, have to. You'd like move to the suburbs or, mm-hmm. or New Jersey or you know. 
Yeah. Look, I live up in Westchester, and taxes are so ridiculous. Yeah, Westchester's not yeah. cheap either. I'm at the point both my sons are out of the house. Yeah. And my wife and I are paying eighteen or twenty thousand dollars a year in taxes. Wow. And we have a big house on an acre. We're like, we may have to, you know, just downsize. Why? Why we? You know, I mean, seriously, why? Right. Do I need landscapers, a pool guy, you know, right. and all this maintenance and shit? But it's hard to, I sound like a dick, but it's it's hard to downsize. When you're used to that? It's not that you're used to it, but it, it, like Westchester County is expensive. Yeah. So do you, if you downsize, are you going to necessarily get lower your expenses that much without moving real far north? Right. You know, it's it's just not so easy, but. Did you did you want to move away from the city? Because would it be scary for you as an ex officer to live in Manhattan around? Nah, I don't. I don't think so. I, I mean, I like to live in the city, but when we when we lived in the city, I, actually, my wife lived with me in that Barrow Street apartment for a while. Uh-huh. I was cut. My car got stolen twice. I was like tired of it. You know, yeah. let's get the hell out of this city. This is ridiculous. It's you know? so much safer now. Though. Right, right. It, it is. It, and my brother lost that rent controlled apartment because the, oh, no. now they hire detectives to see who really lives there. You know, it, yeah. Does the lease really live here? You yeah, know? it's big money. Yeah, man. it is big money. So they don't play around anymore. You know, you still go to your old uh, precinct and see. People? Nah, you know something. I, my last ten years, I, homicide was out of uh, thirty two eighty Broadway. It's mm-hmm. a building owned by columbia university okay and we were on the sixth floor floor it wasn't a precinct and on the oh. same floor was internal affairs was on that floor mm-hmm. i think there was manhattan gang and special victims used to be up there too and then they moved out which was this biggest mistake they ever made because now they're in psa5 which is a housing project housing building housing police so you used to uh investigate kind of was it more like i don't want to say petty crimes but not like big white collar heists no we don't do we homicide doesn't do that what we would do anything where there was of like a violent nature okay you know like uh shootings murders but if there was like a major case Mm -hmm. and it involved uh, like bernie madoff for example his no we wouldn't that we wouldn't do that that's white collar we would kidnappings we, we would get involved in oh no um which we you know had you know be a lot of drug kidnappings and what's stuff. The, what's the worst kidnapping case you worked on well we had we we had this girl that was kidnapped by her boyfriend it was all caught on video uh-huh. but he was such an idiot he just and he physically forcibly removed her from an apartment we just went to brooklyn and found that he was there in his apartment so but he gets locked up for kidnapping but we also had a boyfriend and girlfriend break up one time mm-hmm. and he took her kid Oof. i kidnapped a kid to get back at her and this was a real serious one yeah how old was the kid the That's... kid was like five or six wow you know and we recovered the kid and locked him up. And it was no joke, you know, because I don't know what he was going to do to that kid because right. he was like so pissed at her. Yeah. That's when people, you know, kill people, you know. Did you find that murders and kidnappings, it, the people always knew each other? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they say in, in homicide, like 80% of the time, the victim and the perpetrator know each other. Right. There's you always know? a history there. Yeah. Because, you know, look, that's where the... Uh, you know, the, the real anger comes from is uh, the passion is from someone you know. Right. Someone like say love and hate is very close. Um, an emotion that's very close, right. right? But there's, you know, a lot of things have been cut back on like, they don't get as many domestic violence murders anymore because they're much stricter with domestic violence. Like if a husband hits his wife, yeah, he's getting locked up. 
Right away. Back in the day, yeah. It used to be like, all right, we'll mediate it. You go to counseling. You go down the street, have a few beers. You know, it was like so stupid that right, way they right. used to do it. Yeah. Now they lock the guy up right away, and the judge issues an order of protection. Right. And the whole criminal justice system sets in motion, so it, it prevents... The, it, it prevents it from escalating. Escalating to, to yeah. murder, yes. I mean, as we saw with the OJ trial, there were so many red flags. Oh, it's, yeah, well, and that's what happens. If, it's, if the person's not stopped right. at some point, yeah. it's going to escalate to murder. Yeah, know? I read that uh, domestic abuse, if, the, if, they hit, if they hit the partner once, it only escalates. It oh, never yeah. it, it gets never, much worse. It yeah. always, it gets, always worse. gets worse. And, you know, you think of um, women that put up with that. Yeah. You know, there's a psychology behind that, too, that they usually came from an abusive family. So they're, the, they're equating it to love in some sort of yeah, way. Yeah, where the father hit their mother or they were abused themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what they know. And they're always attracted to that type of man who's abusive. And often don't want to press charges. Oh, yeah. But that's why... Can now, can they do that now? Can they no, st- yeah, people stay in New York will prosecute. They don't need them. Even to press. even if the partner doesn't want. Well, to press. they you know the case can fall apart, but the guy still gets a, gets locked up. Uh huh. I arrested a rabbi once. You did, and it was just I get to For the domestic apartment, abuse. Yeah, domestic abuse, and I get to the apartment, and you know you have to speak to both of them uh, separately, right? Because or else you'll never get the story. Yeah, and the wife will be scared of that. Yeah. yeah. So I spoke to her and she was like, he smacks the shit out of me all the time and oh, blah, 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 blah. He did this, he did that. I was like, all right, he's, he's finished. I go up to him. He's like, please, Sergeant, please. You know, I got a wedding in the morning and a funeral in the <laughs> afternoon tomorrow. I go, Rabbi, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. Hell you yeah. Know? And, you know, it's... But that's what stops the violence from escalating. And that the police department learn that the hard way you know a lot mm-hmm. of times in the 60s or 70s they would mediate domestic violence and they'd leave and then the guy would come back and kill the the wife you know right so even if the guy's arrested now he has a record doesn't mean he's still right. not going to do it no but he's not allowed to go back to the apartment so he the order of protection will prohibit certain kind and the order look the order of protection is a piece of paper right the woman has to report but if he it. violates it yeah, he gets arrested again. Right. And people, you know, eventually get tired of getting arrested. Yeah. If you have any kind of life, you know, you can't keep a job if you keep getting arrested, you know. Right. Was there a certain crime that really, like, hit home with you more than others? You know, the the kid murders were the worst. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I had a case one time where um, a 13-year-old kid, and this was in the 2-3 in Spanish Harlem, was stabbed to death. And it was a bullshit fight between, like, gang thing but at the same time my son was 13 all right so i'm looking at this kid yeah. you know his little body but a big stab wound in his chest you know and the kid that stabbed him was 16 mm. and i remember that case it went to trial and the first trial and i didn't testify but i'm i, I was really involved in this case the first trial resulted in a hung jury why? They couldn't. Uh, they couldn't get twelve nothing. It was like eleven one to convict him, uh-huh. because the one juror didn't want to put this kid away for twenty five to life. He's being tried as an adult. As a uh, yeah, he's sixteen. He's being tried as an adult. Yeah. So they tried it again, <clears throat> and he got convicted. Mm-hmm. And this judge, I remember her name was Carol Berkman, and they told me what she said. She said, "Stand up, young man." And he stand, The kid stands up, and she goes, "I've noticed during this whole trial, you just had this dumb looking smirk on your face." And she goes, you show absolutely no remorse 
It's like you killed a fly or you know, swaddle a fly. You could not care less. She goes, so I don't care less. She goes, I hereby sentence you to 25 years to life. And he was 16. Wow. I guess he must be close to out by now. That was a long time he might ago. be out right now. Maybe yeah. he's listening to this yeah, podcast. He might, he might be, you know, but <laughs> like things like that. Or you'd have like, uh, we had a four-month-old baby that was um, uh, suffocated to death. And when we mom? got to, um, yeah, yeah, when we got to St. Luke's, all the female cops from the 3 precinct, they were all crying, you know. Mm-hmm. And the mother of the kid was holding the, the dead baby in her arms. And I, we, we had to be the bad guys, like, officer, who let her hold her baby back mm-hmm. here? Why you? And they were just, they were not, be, they weren't professional. They fell apart. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So one of my detectives, the famous Joe the Lip, he grabs the doctor. He says, doctor, you, he starts questioning her. And all of a sudden she's getting defensive because she's not even thinking that there's any foul play here. You know, the mother, no, the doctor, Okay, the doctor, he's right. like, did you check this? Did you check? I mean, he's like, she's like, whoa. So we grab both the parents and we take them back to the three O precinct. And within like 15 minutes, the father confessed to killing the kid. Did he say why? The kid wouldn't stop crying oh and they God. just weren't really equipped to be good parents. Yeah. And he put the pillow over the baby's face and suffocated the baby. Wow. So we were being the bad guys by, but really we were correct in doing what we did you know yeah this is a this is a potential murder you know yeah yeah absolutely those did the husband and wife the mother father both go you to know jail? i know that the um the uh husband confessed i don't know if we ever got the wife to confess you mm-hmm. know and some also we have some some dumb shit happen like we had this one woman who was a foster mother put a fentanyl you know what fentanyl is yeah that's she very put a po- fentanyl right patch Mm-hmm. on a five-year-old wow because she had a headache so when she checked on the baby in the morning guess what happened the baby was dead yeah od'd yeah od'd a five-year-old well, a fentanyl patch that didn't even belong to the woman it was a neighbor's fentanyl patch oh yeah so let's your pharmacist let's put it on a five-year-old you know right so we wanted to lock her up for murder and um i don't know what the da wouldn't go with the charges so basically just stupidity you know must have been some charges it should have been like criminally negligent homicide there was you know there's there's no intent right there has to be intent intent to murder yes and there was no intent there was just gross negligence like stupidity right that's criminally negligent homicide so you do get time for that no she didn't get any time no time no i mean we see some horrible shit this one girl uh she was like 16 years old she gave birth during the night Mm mm-hmm no one knew she was pregnant. She takes the baby, puts it in a shoebox, and just puts it in the closet. Wow. Wakes up in the morning. I don't know if at this point the baby is alive or dead. She takes the shoebox, throws it in her backpack, goes to St. Luke's on 113th Street, hands the security guard the box, and just walks out, to, with, intending just to go to school. Whoa. Like nothing happened. Just you know? living in a compartmentalized yeah. denial reality. And the security guard opens the box. He's like, wow! He runs out, grabs the girl. Yeah. Same thing. We, My detectives were horrified, you know? And the girl, it was almost, she was so removed. Like, this This was just something I wanted to get rid of. It wasn't a human being. You know, it just, I just, yeah, I gave it to What did you do when, the, when it was born, you know? Yeah. 
Now, she must have cut the umbilical cord because how the hell could she have put it in the box without doing that? And how did she go through that birth herself without Yeah, any... right. I, no, I didn't have all answers to all that. We were just like... Was she insane before it? She seemed like totally normal, this girl. Wow. Just I had no... What's that, the ego where you have a conscience? You yeah. Know? This was not a human being to her, you uh-huh. know? I mean, you, like we, you see shit like that, you just can't believe it. You yeah. just have to like say, "All right, you know, this is this didn't happen." You know, yeah. There's a there's a lot of emotional stuff. Do you find with your acting that you can summon this stuff? Yeah, I can actually. You know, you, I always thought it would be really hard to cry, uh-huh. but I could do it. You know, that's it. It's, it's, and you think about these real. I things? don't know. I don't know how exactly what I'm thinking about, but it, I can do it. You yeah. know. You get into that state, and you know, always you wonder, like, well, how do you get your voice crack or something like that? You know, and, and do you have acting. a method for that? Yeah, I, you know, I can just put myself in these states, and I, I don't think exactly of anything really, but I know, I guess you just pull forth emotion that you felt before, right? You but know? do you put yourself? Do you do you imagine some of the bodies you've seen? Some, yeah, the- I, I, you know, it's it's hard for me to. Do you act too? I'll do, yeah, I do some acting. Yeah, it's hard to, for you to, to describe what you do to someone else. I don't mm-hmm. know. Can you do that? Can you say this is what you draw upon to... Yeah, I do. I'll think about certain things that yeah. make me emotional and try to exploit them. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's what I, I do, but it's, I don't think it's any one thing. You know, I guess it's just uh-huh. drawing upon a lot of things. Yeah. And whatever you need to, to get the... You know, and sometimes it takes a lot of time to work on a scene to get to that you mm-hmm. know yeah like i one time did a scene from ordinary people mm-hmm. where he's basically telling his wife that he doesn't think he loves her anymore and it was re- a really like emotional scene right you know i don't know if you ever see that movie uh it's been on years yeah it was an i think it was a best picture and act donald sutherland may have won best actor but it was, it was a really still good yeah it's still really good maybe the movie's a little dated yeah mary tyler moore played the mother yeah it was, mm. it was good but look, I, I don't pretend to be. Uh, I'm a rookie at acting too. I'm mm-hmm. you know, trying to get better. It's 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 really hard, you know. But it seems like you have a lot of life experience all, to pull from. Oh, no, absolutely. It, it, the it, the emotions it, are, are there. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can. There's a lot of look. Anything, even your own life. Everyone has mm-hmm. horror in their own life. You know, uh, pain. Everyone has sorrow. You know, everyone experiences love, and uh, to be able to put forth that emotion in acting that's what makes good actors great actors and you know bad actors too that can't do that you know absolutely but to be able to you know you've in your job you've had to be tough and block stuff out yeah you know something look we worked on police murders those are always horrendous suicides i mean suicides a lot of cops kill themselves you know because it's just too much well yeah and you know the gun's there you know and most i would say i don't have the statistics but most cops obviously kill themselves with their gun, their own you know, because yeah. that method of destruction is right there. You live with it, you know, 24-7, 365 days a if year. If you're feeling impulsive. Yeah. And, you know, cops kill themselves with their gun all the time, you mm-hmm. know. And we go, to, we go to those, you know, just or even regular suicides of regular people. I, I, we one time we had a 15-year-old kid in Taino Towers up in the 2-5 precinct. He went into the stairwell on the floor of the girl who just broke up with him mm. and blew his brains out in the stairwell. 15 years 15 old. 15 years old. Like, I mean, 
if someone could have got to that kid, you know, yeah. before that, like, said, dude, you're 15. Yeah, it's going to be so yeah, many right more. There, right, there's going to be a million <laughs> girls. Forget about her, you know? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. You know? And he, the thing was, too, he fired twice. Wow. So the first time he punked. Wow. No, I don't like to use that word. He punked out, but he... Did he miss? He or? missed the first time. Okay. Oh, he, he pulled the gun away. Right. Second time, he he did the dirty deed, you wow. know? Yeah, no, it's horrible. And you see people that hang themselves, people that jump off a building. I mean, you've seen everything, you know? Mm -hmm. There's some horrible shit, you mm -hmm. know? People that pour, get poisoned, you know? I mean, suicide. I, I only saw autoerotic asphyxia once, you know, because uh, every comic has a joke about that, right, it seems, right? right? Someone, someone think, that was doing that and they slipped yeah, up. Yeah, and they and, died from oh. it, yeah. Dressed, a man dressed in guard, a belt and all, woman's clothing and all that shit. And, and that's how he's neck. found dead. Yeah. And I, but you would think that that's common. And in all the homicide scenes mm -hmm. and suicide scenes I ever went to, I only saw it once in my whole career. You uh -huh. know? So it's probably not that common. But it, it happens, you know. Yeah, I mean, hanging yourself seems like a tough way to kill yourself. People do that, too. It's That's horrible, you know. I mean, I've seen it all. The one real creative one I saw was... Um, and I always wished I had saved a copy. This guy left like an eight or ten page suicide note. He was a doctor. Uh -huh. And um, I won't tell the whole story because I don't want someone might recognize who it was. But he set up three um, IVs and he laid in his bed and white t-shirt, gray sweatpants, nice and comfortably laid back. And he put all three IVs in his arm and he he started all of them. And... He just died in his what, bed. What were they? You know, the one, the first IV. Some nice I just, morphine. Well, some no, nice... a, uh, a doctor, of, another doctor came by. He was a doctor, by the way. Yeah. Another doctor came by and she explained it to us. She said, and this, this was just designed to slow down his breathing and make him comfortable. She goes, the second one was the knockout punch. She goes, the third one was like the atomic bomb. To make sure it happened. To make sure that yeah. if anything happened, that it, it, he was he wanted to die. You he know? was a professional. Yeah, yeah. But he had tried suicide before, but this time he really wanted it. And he left this really eloquent eight or ten page suicide note that was really sad, you know. Mm -hmm. And... um you know, you see the kind of pain that people go through. You Did know? you get to investigate his life and kind of figure out? Well, no, we, we interviewed his family, mm -hmm. you know, and they had told us uh, he, he was gay and he, his, his life partner lived with him, who he incidentally left his apartment to, and left everything to. And it was, I mean, it just he had a real tragic, he was, you know, as he explained it, he had everything going for him in life. Yeah. Great family great education great but he was always unhappy you know mm -hmm. so you can't it's like someone that's manic depressive or chemically depressed there's nothing you can there's nothing you could do yeah it's you know it's mm -hmm. sad but you know that's the kind of you, you have you get you have the highest highs and the lowest lows in the police department especially doing what we did i was the covering boss one night i get called into washington heights it was some holiday because it's dominican family had a big party in their apartment and the 16-year-old son went up to the roof and he was smoking weed up there mm -hmm. 
And he was fooling around, like jumping around, and he fucking flew off the roof. Oh, no. Like, you know, if you see those bars on the roof? Yeah. He was like kicking his legs off. Oh, and I idiot. guess he kicked too hard because he was high. Yeah. And he flew like 10 or 12 stories down to his death. And we went to the apartment. And it was like people were grabbing us and hugging us. And, you know, cause just because the, the grief was so horrendous. Right. And it's almost like, you know, when like a force is taking the energy or the power from you to make them stronger, you know? Right, right. That's what it felt like. But it was such a, you know, pretty horrible experience, you know? Yeah. And, you know, th those are the things that, you know, that all that shit stays with you, you know? Sure, that's but, a lot of emotion. To yeah, yeah. And you're just like, fuck. You walk out of it and you're like, I need a drink, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's why a lot of cops, and well, they're not just cops, a lot of people become alcoholics. Yeah, high stress. Yeah, they can't deal with the, you know, they got a drink or do, you know, I'm no stranger to drinking, but I don't, I'm not <laughs> an alcoholic. Were, were you on call all the time? No, you know, so we had, there was three teams in mm -hmm. homicide. They had the A team, which I had, there was a B team and a D team. So we covered um, around the clock or every day of the week, you know, because we, we worked four and two. What so, is that? You'd work four days on, two days off. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. So you'd work four to one, four to one, eight to four, eight to four. Mm -hmm. The second four to one was called the turnaround. Mm -hmm. You would always stay overnight because if you, it, it, most guys live out of the city. Right. So every hour you're spending commuting, that's less sleep you're getting. Right. So also on the second four to one, we would try to get involved in something. So we wouldn't sleep at all. We'd work right through to the next get, day get that and get seven time. hours overtime yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you know but overtime a lot of times came when you didn't want it you know what i mean right you're like oh shit i want to go home all of a sudden it's 10 to 1 and a sh someone's shot and you're like oh <laughs> i was already sleeping i imagine most crime happens after 10 p.m anyway right yeah most of it happens but it also happens a lot of time overnight like after one o'clock two three four in the morning sure and then you come in at eight o'clock and you got this that's why there's a unit on the police department called Night Watch. Uh -huh. And there's detectives and a sergeant that work the whole borough of Manhattan. And anything that happens, they have the first responding investigators. But in the morning, it's tossed to the squad right. that covers that area. So if there's someone shot or someone killed up, in the, say, in the 3-0 precinct, Night Watch goes there and they do the whole preliminary investigation. And you get there in the morning and they hand you all their paperwork mm -hmm. and their unusual occurrence report and all this other shit so you can get up to speed quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. Because before you know it, your phone's going to be ringing, but some chief's going to go, all right, what's going on with the case? And you're like, oh, I just got in, man. You, you know? work one case at a time? No, because you can be on a case and then you, a bigger case could happen. Yeah. And you get called off that case. Uh -huh. And you got to go. If you get called off a case, what happens to the case? You got called Usually, off. if we get called off a case, what you do is you leave the the catching case from homicide with the case, the catching detective from that squad, okay. and then you take as many detectives as you need for the new occurrence. Wow, that would happen a lot too, right? You know, like they say, when it rains, it pours. What makes a bigger case from another? Well, a murder is a murder, right? Yeah, you would think anything mm -hmm. happens below Ninety Sixth Street. Believe me, it's not getting. It's getting precedence yes and the police department will deny that to the end of time but right. all of a sudden you know you got any anything you need give us south homicide all right you need brooklyn homicide you, you get all the resources you need right because it's below 96th street and it's a press case anything happens in central park oh my god it's like you know same thing it's a press case right you so, want to keep keep all keep 
a good uh, reputation for the well the press is going to be so interested in it because the central park is uh, recognized as this oasis right you know in new york city and it's got to stay safe but th- oh my god someone was murdered in the park it's like well you you were officer central park five is that what it's called no that was uh that my uh, manhattan north homicide reinvestigated that yeah that uh, that what was, was that, the, that was the rape um of a uh well, almost the rape and the murder mm-hmm. of she was an investment banker mm-hmm. and she was jogging, jogging. yeah park. they called it a central park jogger and a whole look i know that 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 um documentary paints the picture that these guys were framed and these guys were in the park robbing people hitting them with baseball bats right you know they were not innocent kids these guys right they all confessed mm-hmm. to doing it or taking part in this but they, our unit the manhattan thomas had reinvestigated that and they all felt that these guys were still involved in it but they didn't leave dna this one serial rapist his name was matthias reyes uh-huh. what the theory was from our point of view and, and I think over a hundred page reinvestigation, if you ever wanted to read it, is that they attacked her, and this guy Matthias Reyes came in and joined the attack, and he actually uh, completed the rape wow. and left DNA. So he was in um, he was up in prison for something else, uh-huh. and when they had finally matched the DNA, and because the DNA of the 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 five guys who were arrested. There was no DNA. They from left them. none. The five. They didn't. No. That. But you know that that could be explained too. Right. But the Manhattan DA's office decided to drop charges against them, and then they were released, and then they got De Blasio without fighting the case at all. Gave each one of them five million dollars. No way. Yeah. So they got like twenty-five million. But they were involved in it. Well, our unit felt they were. Right. They confessed to it. The, the 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 people with the, the talk about false confessions right say that they were coerced and they were threatened in this but they were they all confessed in front of their parents their parents in the room with them yeah do they have records yeah you know some most of them were juveniles so the records would have been sealed okay one of them i think was over 16 or 17 and i i don't know specifically i'd have to look at the case but cuomo just raised the age of um uh, back then, they they made the age you could be tried as an adult. They dropped it from I think eighteen to sixteen. Okay, because there was this guy named Willie Boskett mm-hmm. who was like fifteen, who was like a one man crime wave. Yeah, and he almost single handedly made the state legislature change the law and, and drop the age down. Real overachiever, huh? Yeah, yeah, an overachiever <laughs> in the crime world. So, but look now, look, I look at my own kids. Our kids. Kids are kids for a long time, you know. As an 18-year-old, a kid, a 17, 16, I mean, you you, you might look at it that, but if you're a victim of a crime, mm, exactly. you don't want to look at it like, yeah, he, he hit me in the head pretty well, you know. You see these kids playing that knockout game. Right. I mean, and I I once was on uh, Lisa Sliwa's show, and they were talking about the knockout game, and I said, you know, it's knockout is like a euphemism for a brain injury. What, what what is this game for people that don't know? They just walk up to people and hit them as hard as they can and knock the person out. Strangers, yeah, strangers, just Sucker punch. yeah, just for fun, yeah. yeah. And usually it's an an older person, you mm-hmm. know. And you know, when a knockout is a concussion, 
Yeah. And a concussion is a brain injury, you know? Yeah. So not it's really not stuff. funny. Yeah, yeah, it's not a game, you know? If you're on the receiving end of that, it's not a game. So, you know, it, it's like it's a double-edged sword. You, you want people to be rehabilitated and not do crime again, but sometimes punishment comes in there too, you know? Yeah, of course. You know, especially if you're a victim and you don't feel someone's, you know, someone can ruin your life and then they get a slap on the wrist because the court is more concerned with their life than your life. Right. You know? Right. That's probably pretty frustrating. Yeah. You probably saw a lot of criminals yeah, so, you know, get off. And- we, you know, in the 80s, we'd go to Central Booking, which is called the Tombs. Uh-huh. There would be like gridlock to get in there. It would be so packed. Yeah. You know? And a lot of it was because narcotics used to do these sweeps or transit would do a subway sweep. Mm-hmm. And there'd be hundreds, hundreds of guys in all there. at once. Oh just... man! And lines of people. It was like you had to take like a ticket to get into Central Booking. You yeah, know? it was crazy. But yeah, you know, it's the crack era too. Did a lot of that. Crack is gone. Yeah, you know, now it's the big thing is these opioids. You yeah, know, people dying left and right from prescription drugs. It's, it's and a fentanyl, horrible... like you said earlier. Yeah. That's yeah. that's back and it's pretty common now. You know, I think that drugs is has always been the, the locomotive that pulls the crime train, you mm-hmm. know. And, uh, you, you know. mean the addiction to them? Yeah, because when people do drugs, they need money to get more drugs. Right. You know, and not, it's not like they're going to go work a job. They're going to do crimes to pay so for it. There's that saying, the drugs aren't a problem until you can't afford it. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and when I first started, it was heroin. Yeah. You know, you'd go up through Harlem and you'd see all these people. You ever see the elephantitis legs? Yeah. that's It was like the night of all the walking dead, but right. they all had the big fat elephant legs. What is that? Just, it's from like infections. Your know, legs right. just blow up, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times heroin addicts would get gangrene. They'd lose their leg and stuff. Infection you know? from shooting up. Yeah, from shooting up with dirty mm-hmm. needles and all right. of that stuff. And then when the whole HIV thing hit, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like that... That slowed down the heroin addictions. Uh, people got people switched of clean needles. At yeah, least. And, and then they it, it seems like crack hit, and they switched from heroin to crack. You know, right? Which makes funny. you more. One bi- time we saw this guy, and he had the big elephantitis legs, and he was all messed up. And we said, "Dude, you should switch to crack." He goes, "That shit's bad for you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the guy's legs look like. I believe it. Oh, that you should be. That should have been a commercial, right? Drug free America. <laughs> He's got his limits. That's that's right. I do have my standards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's too low class for that's me. That's right. Man. No crack. No way. <laughs> Heroin's much more. It's crazy. And heroin now is like the comeback, right? You hear a lot of people dying from heroin. Yeah, it's well, too pure, right? Well, this, yeah, and they're also starting from doctors prescribing their Percocets and same stuff, Vicodins, all that. Yeah, it's it's you know, people will say that. Now that it's in suburbia, they're paying attention. Right. But when it was in the inner city, no one gave a shit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. but It's also more widespread, too. Yeah. I mean, kids really young dying from that. It's, it's, it's a horror, you know? How would you feel if uh, one of your sons wants to be a police officer? You know, <laughs> I almost feel bad that neither one of them wants to. You, you want? Know? Would you, you want? Yeah, I mean, if they wanted to, yeah. You know, but neither one of them... Uh, is attracted to that you know it's mm-hmm. maybe i'm from like an irish catholic background mm-hmm. 
my wife is Jewish. Okay. She's from the Upper West Side, so maybe they took more of her values than mine. <laughs> you know, and they that right. this cop shit, fuck that. You know. Yeah. But so my one son's trying to be a film editor, and the other one, he's actually working sort of in law enforcement now. He's an investigative analyst mm. for the Westchester DA's office, but that's not like a long term job. He's looking to do something else. He's looking to go back to school and get his master's for something, but. No, so, they weren't interested in it. You know? you, you, if they wanted to, you wouldn't say, no, it's too dangerous? No, I, you know, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't tell you the truth. I wouldn't want them coming on the NYPD. I'd rather them go on like Nassau or Westchester or something like that. Yeah. Because the politics in New York City are just, you know, the politics are just bad. They're really bad, you know, and it's like you can't really be a cop anymore, you know? What do you mean by that? Well, they sort of... We used to have that thing, the thing called stop, question, and frisk. Yeah. Yeah. In, in and, the subways. and that was like a really important thing, you know, when crime was rampant. Mm -hmm. And now that it's not that rampant, they've made it so that you almost like have to get permission from the person you're stopping to stop them. It's like, it's sort of ridiculous, but the city will get away with that until crime comes back. If it ever comes back to the levels of the right. 1980s, they're going to have to lean, you know, give more put more of the rules on the side of the police and less on the side of the criminal. You right. know? How do you feel about uh, each officer having to have a camera? You know, at first I was against that, mm -hmm. but now I'm like, you know, it's a new world we're living in and everyone is videotaping everything. Yeah, it's crazy. So why not have the videotape from his perspective, right? you know, coming from his chest? Look, I, I tell this story... Um, in 1988, I, w I was in citywide anti-crime, and I was in in the Bronx with uh, in an unmarked car. We were in a 4-4 precinct. Just to give a little reference, the 4-4 precinct that year, 1988, had 83 murders that year, the 44th precinct. We p we get into the precinct, and we're in plain clothes, and we're driving around, and we see a guy in the street, bloody mess, just got robbed. Throw him in the car, get in the car. What did the guy look like? Give us a description. Yeah. We're driving to look for the guys who just robbed him, and we hear... Boom, 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 five shots, right? We're like, holy shit, man. We just got here, you know? Yeah. So we go towards where we heard the shots. We see two guys running. And I could tell one of them had a gun. I said, a guy driving the car, Frank, let me out. I get out. I go, police. The guy pulls out a gun and he tosses it to the ground. Mm -hmm. We had a third guy in the car, this guy, Tony. We, I used to call him Mongo. Guy was 6'5", 275. He was a monster. <laughs> yeah. Always wore the powerhouse gym shirt, you know? So I run after the guy, and he turns and like squares off like to fight me. And I had my old thirty-eight in my hand with the four-inch barrel. I hit him as hard as I could over the top of the head, opened him up like a fucking cantaloupe, you know? <laughs> Blood flying all over my new champion sweatshirt. Uh -huh. I knock him to the ground. I couldn't get him cuffed because he was like this. Fifty of his friends surround us. And there's mm. three of us, and we're like this, holding off the crowd. We'll call a 1013, which is police officers. You're holding off the crowd with your gun with out. Our guns, yeah. Yeah. And we call a 1013 over the air. This guy had shot, just shot two people. He shot a guy in the head. That was Those were the five shots we heard. Wow. He was the shooter. Yeah. But then I learned like about Bronx justice. The two guys he shot refused to identify him. They didn't want to cooperate with us. And their whole philosophy was, we'll take care of it ourselves. Uh -huh. We don't need the police. And that was like the first time in my young career. Oh, I'm not really not the first time, but I heard a victim of a crime say, no, no, I'll take care of it myself. Why? Because they didn't want 
they don't like they don't want to deal with the police it's almost like the snitches get stitches type thing yeah. no, no i don't need the police right i got my own get i'll just go home and get it and i'll go shoot him you know the handle it a street style yeah I'll handle it street justice style right yeah exactly and here i am i'm all banged up i get cuts all over my arms and my hands are cut up i'm i'm in the emergency room this guy's getting stitched up some nurse just slams a needle into my arm with tetanus shot you know right 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 and i'm up all night and i go to court the next morning and i'm just like this is almost like a game no one cares that this guy shot two people mm-hmm. you know he's he this guy was 21 years old i think i think he had a 10 page rap sheet wow and i say i am like in danger really endangering my life yeah. for a case that no one give he'll go away just for the gun i think he got like 4 years just for the gun cuz mm-hmm. his his rap sheet was like pff, ridiculous but i was just like it's so crazy you know i can imagine uh once you had kids that that kind of stuff changed for you cuz it's all of a sudden you're like oh well i got to stay alive now for my you know, kids. I still got involved, but I wasn't like doing the plain clothes anti crime stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think by the time I had kids, I was um, no, I probably still wasn't plain clothes for a few of the years. And then I went to the squad, and I was you know suit and tie. But we still got involved, but not yeah. we went out patrolling. You know, your life was at less less. It was less. yeah because you, really you get involved when you had to apprehend someone, right? You, all right, this guy, he's wanted for shooting. This guy's wanted for murder. Let's go get him. Yeah. You know, and that's dangerous too, you know? Absolutely. But it's not like driving around where shit's going to run into you, you know? So when a guy's like, uh, we'll, we'll take care of it ourselves, street justice styles, what he's thinking, you must be like, well, you can, but then I'm still going to have to get involved. Yeah, but the, the, what they mean is they're, not, they're just not going to cooperate with the court case. Right. You know, you could tell the district attorney, these are the two guys that get shot. They, I'm sure they know who shot them, but they're not, mm-hmm. and they don't give a shit. They, they're going to tell the DA the same thing. Yeah. Or they'll say, I didn't see his face. You know, mm-hmm. I looked the other way when he pulled the, you know, that, you hear right. people say that all the time. Yeah. When the gun came out, I was looking the other way. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, chances are they had a dispute with the guy before he shot them. Right. Or was over some drug nonsense. Right. There's no, there's no innocent people involved, really. No, not in these cases, you know, but yeah. it was just like, you know, it's funny to tell the story now, and it's like 30 years ago. I actually have the unusual occurrence report at home, and I was reading it nice. a couple of days ago, <laughs> and it was like December 21st, 1988. I was like, and I just got there to Citywide Anti-Crime like a few days before that. That was my first night out on patrol. Wow. Uh, you know, in plain clothes. I had three and a half years on the job at the yeah. time. But it, I mean, it was exciting, you know, it was, you know, you just you, you're just driving around, you're gunfire and shit, and you're like, wow, this is cool. But, you know, it's cool as long as you don't get hit with one of those things, you know? You ever shot someone? No, I never, you know, I and all the time, and I worked in a lot of dangerous stuff, and I never had to shoot anybody, which I'm happy about, you right. know? Yeah, but. And I know guys that have been in two and three shootings, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, hey, I was lucky. Knock on wood, I didn't have to shoot anybody. Yeah. You know? I mean, we pulled our guns practically every single night, you know, especially in plain clothes. Right, yeah. You know, you're stopping people, but. Uh, Luckily, I never had. Or even when you, you know, you go into someone's apartment that's wanted for a murder, you know, you, you go in with the gun out. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You know, or you, the, the I, I got to write a bit about this. Whenever you go into someone's apartment, they got these two pit bulls named Beelzebub and Satan, right? <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh, they don't bite, they don't bite. You're like, put the dogs in the bathroom and close the door. Yeah. You know? No, no, no. He's friendly. 
Yeah. You know, he only eats white cop's legs, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That adrenaline you must feel going into an apartment like that, do you, does that get addictive? Maybe it does, you know, but look, I would not be afraid to say I'm scared. You know, you're scared. Yeah, but that's kind of Definitely afraid. Yeah, that is a part of adrenaline, too. It's a rush. And if you're not afraid, then you're a psycho. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You're nuts. (laughs) Look, I've had cops, too, one cop in particular, I won't use his name, but- he shot and killed the guy because the guy pulled a gun on him and he was, they were fighting for the gun. He put his gun and shot the guy right in the neck and killed him. Wow. He was the only cop I ever saw that was like, that was so cool. Wow. You know, yeah. I, I never saw anyone react like that. Usually someone's very somber and like, you know, it's, you know, I hope I never have to do that again, you know, but this yeah. guy was like, he was like a Marine and shit. He was like, right. fucking so cool. I was like, oh, whoa. That's scary, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's not really a good reaction. To yeah, that, you, you know? want you want to deal with humans. <laughs> yeah, you, no, but you want to be a little more somber about it. Like you know, I hope I don't ever have to do that again. Or you know, yeah, that sucked. You know, why didn't he just drop the gun? You know, mm-hmm. why you, did he have to fight us? You know, you missed the rush at all. You know, s- certain thing when we had like a big case, I missed that. I missed the you know how good my guys were. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably the whole the whole homicide squad. Every, it was they were all stars. You know, everyone was had a great history, and everyone had mm-hmm. uh, great credentials. And I was, you know, I would be really proud to see like my team working on this case. And then you'd have detectives from other uh, units within the police department. Yeah, and they would literally be in fucking awe of the homicide squad. They would just look and be like. They they go get us coffee, you know. Nice. It's like, yeah. what's the that's the biggest honor you could get us? Bring us coffee and donuts. <laughs> but they literally were like, I can't believe how good these guys are. Fucking amazing, you know. Yeah, you had a good squad. Yeah, and then not just me. There were three teams. All of them were good, you mm-hmm. know. But you know, we were counted on by the chief of detectives and the chief of Manhattan detectives. You know, when something heavy happened, they expected us to solve it, and we did. You mm-hmm. know, they were just the guys were good because they all worked in what's called numbered squads. Mm-hmm. For years, like say they worked in the two eight or the three zero or the three four or the three three, they caught cases for years. So they had all that experience of knowing all the computer systems, interviewing, interrogation. What's a two eight three three? The two eight is in one hundred twenty third Street in Harlem. The three zero is in Hamilton Heights. Oh, okay, that's the precinct. Yeah, number. precincts. Yeah, okay. three three and mm-hmm. three four up in Washington Heights. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, so all these guys had experience working in uh, in numbered squads, and for years before they get to homicide. So they all had reputations as really good detectives in their squads. Right. And that's how they got the homicide squad, you know. You uh, still carry a gun? Yeah, all the time. Well, when I'm in the city, I don't, in Westchester. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even carry it on stage when I when I do comedy. You just do. because I'm in the city. Yeah. So no one better heckle you on the city. <laughs> yeah, that's, people <laughs> joke about that. But no, I, you know something, I just, look, I never shot someone in 27 years. I hope I never have to shoot anyone in my life. But yeah. I have a, a carry permit. Yeah. And it's good for life as long as I stay on the straight and narrow. And when I'm in the city, I'm going to have my gun with me, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not a gun buff either, but I really actually should shoot more often than I do because you should still stay trained. Get and, the practice. Yeah, I should. I, in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go pretty soon. I haven't uh, probably gone in like a year. But I used to go, you know, every couple of months or every three or four months. If a crime happens in front of you, you can legally take out your gun and... Yeah, but you got to be, you really got to be careful because other cops on the street, they don't know who you are. Right, exactly. You know, and you could get shot. So unless I'm like going to saving someone's life or, you know, or my own life, I'm not, not looking to go out there and fight crime, you know, because yeah. a lot of things can go wrong, you right. know? 
you could come to the aid of some woman, say, getting beaten. It could turn out to be her husband, and all of a sudden she's hitting you on the head. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you, yeah, absolutely. So, you, got, you know, look, I've been involved in so many altercations, so many different things. I don't, I'm done. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not looking to do that anymore. Yeah, you know? you steer clear of I'm that. I'm telling jokes now. You know, I'm trying yeah. to get parts in movies <laughs> and shit, you know. Do some commercials, reality modeling, you know. You get you get nervous going on stage? Or you're like, whatever. I, you know, I don't. I, you know, that's sort of funny. I don't. Get, I thought that I would get nervous. I usually don't get nervous at all, you know. I did once. I was out on Long Island. I was only been doing comedy for like six months or nine months. And I was at the brokerage in Merrick. Yeah, yeah. And I had like 21 friends there. Uh-huh, and I thought, that. I didn't feel anything. I stepped on a stage and my legs got wobbly. Yeah, right? you know yeah. I feel that? I was like, whoa, I better not walk around, you know, fall <laughs> down. That was the only time. Usually I, I don't, you know. You sort of, I, maybe it's because you, you're trying to concentrate and mm-hmm. think. I mean, so, as you know, you're doing comedy, it's so easy to forget bits or f- to forget jokes. I find f- that to be the hardest part. If I get nervous, the glitchiness yeah. will make me forget my order or something. Yeah. And I never, ever, ever bring my phone on stage, even when I practice. Yeah. First of all, I can't see it. Yeah. I'd have to put my glasses <laughs> and fucking, you know. But I never do that. So if I don't remember the order, that's tough. Yeah, I don't, I don't like when comics have a phone out. Makes I don't me, like makes so me unprofessional. Wanna, I think it's really unprofessional. Then makes the audience be like, oh, what, I got to check my phone too now. Right. It's, it's sort of look, It looks horrible. I think know? so, yeah. And timing-wise, really, now you got to look at your phone, you know? Yeah, nah. Because if you're walking into a, uh, apartments of murderers, I imagine walking on stage. You is... know, I don't know if you can compare <laughs> it, but I, I, for whatever reason, I, I don't. But, you know... You know, also like even with, like if you do TV, and I've d- done those uh, those episodes of Perfect Murder. I thought I would get really nervous, to, and I don't get nervous doing that either. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I like kicked it up and I was working like a, like a big TV show with real right, if you're working across from De Niro, yeah, or something. something like that. Maybe I'd be like, oh shit, you know, it's, yeah. But maybe I wouldn't. Maybe like, fuck you, man. I've been to three hundred murders. This ain't see shit, you know. That might be a good <laughs> thing to tell yourself. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that's how Absolutely. you could. Uh, yeah, you could definitely lean back on all this experience. That, yeah. So, so what? You did. You did 200 <laughs> movies. I went to 300 crime scenes. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's some real stuff right there. <laughs> Man, thanks for sharing all this. I can. Talk hey, this forever. is great. I mean, yeah, it's funny when you get on a roll, uh, just telling stories and talking. It's so easy, and all time just goes by. And mm-hmm. you know, it's funny when we we do, I did a podcast with um, Mark DeMeo and this other guy Patty Porteous that worked with me. Mm-hmm. And of course, we were all drinking beer during it, you know. Yeah. And it was it, when I listen to it now, it's so funny that I can actually laugh out loud at some of the stuff. Like we we're using copisms, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like cop lingo. Right. And what does this mean? This one guy said, "Oh, guy's a sweat pump." And it was like, "What's a sweat pump?" He goes, "A sweat pump is the same thing as a shake box." And we go, "What's a shake box?" He goes, "A shake box and a sweat pump as a." a new boss that's so nervous that he can't make a decision. So he's a sweat pump. <laughs> I was like, that is the funniest shit, you know? Well, some of the cop expressions, they, they, uh, maybe we'll do another show on that someday. It's so funny. You yeah, know? you could do a whole, a whole, a whole series on, on that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny shit. <laughs> Absolutely. Man, well, good luck with the acting. and uh... Yeah, you know something? Look, um, you're on the same road, man. It's just mm-hmm. that you got to enjoy the journey. Absolutely. Else, if you don't, then what's the point, you know? Absolutely. You got to enjoy the journey and, and reward yourself with the small milestones along the way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just it, the hustle in comedy, though, is, is tough. Yeah, I think if you're if you're not happy until you perform at Madison Square Garden, you're <laughs> yeah. going to be pretty miserable. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. You yeah. Know? 
I'm happy at Otto's shrunken head, you know? <laughs> exactly. And any successful set, I'm, I'm good. For those that don't know, that's 14th and Avenue B. It's in the back of a <laughs> sleazy bar. <laughs> it's, it's far from Madison Square Garden. <laughs> it's only, it's only uh, what is it, 20 blocks, though. <laughs> 20 blocks, but a million <laughs> miles away. <laughs> cool, true. man. Thanks. Good talking. Oh, Gary, thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.